You are listening to the Testudo Times Podcast Network. Hey guys, and welcome to the latest edition of the Testudo Times Outtakes Podcast. I'm your host, Lila Bromberg, here with Matt Levine and Jordan Gold, and today we're joined by Tim Kirkjan uh, to talk about his career in baseball, and uh, which started at the University of Maryland. So we have to ask, what were your best memories uh, in journalism while you were here at Maryland? Uh, I have a lot of bad memories, I must say. Uh, and that's a joke. I had to take a typing test my freshman year. I had to type X number of words in a minute with X, without, you know, with X number of mistakes, no more. Otherwise, I would have flunked that I would not have been able to take the class. So I think in four years at Maryland, that might have been the most pressure I've ever had on me was as a 17 year old freshman, I'm taking a typing class, basically, or a typing test that if I didn't pass it, I couldn't even take the course. Thank goodness, somehow I pulled my way through because I wasn't great on the typewriter, but I got through it and I was able to take the course. That was my first memory of the journalism school at Maryland, and it was not a fond one because I repeat, I'm not sure I've ever been that nervous for anything during my four years at Maryland. When you were at Maryland, did you know that you wanted to go into sports journalism? Yeah, I knew that when I graduated from Walter Johnson High School at, you know, five foot two and 120 pounds, that I wasn't going to play college basketball or college baseball, so I better find another way to stay in sports, specifically baseball. So I went to Maryland saying to myself, I am going to become a sports writer. Um, it was not an easy thing for me to do. I wrote for the high school paper, and it was not good. I was pretty bad. In fact, my gym teacher told me, one of my gym teachers told me my senior year after reading one of my stories, he said, that might be the worst story I've ever read in this newspaper, and I've been here a long time. He said, I hope you're not planning on making this your life's work. And here it is over 45, 45 years later, and it is my life's work, but I had to really, really work on it. Writing did not come easily to me, but eventually I figured it out. Um, so when you were coming up through Maryland and learning about journalism and covering sports, who were uh, some people in the sports journalism world that you looked up to? Well, when I was at Maryland, I was reading the Washington Post every day, and so there were some great writers in that newspaper. I was reading the Washington Star, which uh, was a great newspaper. So Tom Boswell, of course, with the Post, who wrote most of the baseball there, was one guy I read all the time. Uh, Dan Shaughnessy of the, of the Washington Star, I ended up working with him, and he remains my mentor to this day. Those were two guys I really started reading while I was at the University of Maryland. Um, and I would read the Sporting News and Sports Illustrated, and there were some great writers, of course, in there. But yes, that's, uh, and on a, you know, a different level, when I was at Maryland, I 
and I went to the Diamondback four years in a row and offered my assistants to be one of their writers. And four years in a row, I was told, thanks, but we, we have enough writers. We don't need you, which was just as well. I should have followed it up uh, a little bit harder, a little bit more aggressively. But I wrote for my, uh, my county paper, the Montgomery Journal, while I was at Maryland. And I met some really interesting people along the way uh, there. Mark O'Hara was one of our uh, one of our writers who showed me the way on a few things. Lynn Pusey was our sports editor. She showed me the way. And I even covered against Norman Chad, the great Norman Chad, who's so hilarious, another Maryland grad. I covered against him. He was at the, at the uh, Montgomery Sentinel at the time. So I had quite a few uh, people that I looked up to while I was at the University of Maryland. Right, and while you were working for that paper, do you have any favorite memories of games you covered or something that sticks out to you from your time there? Um, yeah, when I was at the, the, the journal, I learned an awful lot. Uh, I remember I was uh, <laughs> I got assigned to cover the uh, Kennedy basketball team because uh, they had a new coach and they had new hopes and everything, and they were playing Wooten. Wooten High School from Montgomery County was the defending state champion, and I was sent to do the story on Kennedy High School, how things are starting to look up. And that first game I covered, Wooten beat Kennedy by like 60 points. <laughs> and I, instead of saying, all right, this is not the right story to do. I attempted to write a story about how Kennedy is getting better, how they just lost by 60 points, when ultimately I should have been writing, even though I wasn't assigned it, I should have been writing how Wooten, defending state champ, is back and better than ever. So that was a good learning experience for me uh, to realize sometimes the story changes while you're covering it, and you better learn to change with the story. And you've been in Major League Baseball for a couple of years now. So what is your favorite memory of covering the MLB? Well, I have so many of them because I've covered every World Series since 1981, every All-Star game since then. I've voted for the Hall for 30 years. Those are all major things that I've done. I covered Cal Ripken all the way through his passing of Lou Gehrig. Uh, for consecutive games played, that was really, really special. But I think if I had to pick one, and it's virtually impossible, but Game 7 of the 1991 World Series, which the Braves and the Twins played, two teams that had finished last the year before and ended up in the World Series, Game 7, one to nothing. Twins beat the uh, Braves. Um, Jack Morris pitched a 10-inning, one to nothing shutout. Uh, the noise in the Metrodome that day was deafening beyond words. Um, when I've, I've covered so many great World Series games. I think it, that has to be the best one. And since it was Game 7, with everything riding in such a charged atmosphere, uh, that's got to be right near the top of the list. So with such a long career in baseball, if you had to tell one story from your career of an interaction with a coach or a player, what would it be? Well, I think to go back to the Cal Ripken story, which was a huge story, you know, this many years ago, I was granted access to follow him around for basically a week. So I went to his house. I went to his gym. 
I went on an airplane, a team flight with him. I was allowed to kind of follow him around the entire time. Uh, I drove to a game with him and home from a game with him just to see how the ultimate Ironman handles his normal day. And I got about six or seven days of that. And that might be the most compelling story that I've been a part of because I got let into a place uh, where most others were not allowed and the things I learned from that. And I'm, I don't think I ever wrote down more than maybe two minutes of quotes from him as an, a, an official formal interview. I just kind of followed him around. I saw what I saw and I wrote it down at the end of the day. Fortunately, I have a pretty good memory. I can remember things that I hear for a long time to come, but it was just so interesting being around somebody of that magnitude for that long. I think that's probably my my highlight because it was such a great story and I got access that I'm not sure I've ever gotten for any other story that I've done. Right. And, you know, for me personally, that's my favorite types of stories is being a fly on the wall, being able to get that access. Do you think now in the age of journalism, we are now where players have, you know, social media in their own way of getting stuff out, but that's becoming less and less and kind of access is decreasing? Yes. And that, that's really unfortunate for journalism today is that the players, let's face it, really don't need the media anymore. They have so many other things going in their favor, whether it's the player's journal or their own, you know, Twitter feed or whatever they want to do. I mean, it used to be an enormous day when I covered uh, for Sports Illustrated. It was a big deal for a player to get his picture and have a cover on Sports Illustrated, and it simply isn't that way anymore. Um, and that's just the way journalism has gone. It's really unfortunate. So the days of granting access to anyone for most of a seven-day period, I think for the most part, those days are over, and uh, maybe the players are happy about that, but the media can't get to the bottom of the story without access of some kind, and I don't think the access is what it used to be, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And you're talking about being a fly on the wall, but if you had to pick your actual favorite interview that you did, who would it be or what would it be? Well, I had a lot of great interviews with, uh, with Tony Gwynn. I interviewed Hank Aaron and Willie Mays at the Hall of Fame, the two of them, me standing in between them. That was pretty cool. I interviewed Ted Williams at the Hall of Fame like five minutes after I interviewed Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. But I think my greatest interview I ever did was two years ago, Hank Aaron, the same Hank Aaron, the great Hank Aaron, came to the booth as expected, and we, we expected to have him for two innings of a game, a Braves game, at the new Braves Stadium, and he stayed for four and a half innings. So I sat next to Henry Aaron for close to two hours, and I got to ask him every question I wanted to ask as the game was going on, and I keep score, of course, of every game I ever go to, but I stopped keeping score of that game because I was so enthralled sitting next to Henry Aaron. And I, I don't check Twitter very often because it usually doesn't lead to good things. But afterwards, somebody wrote on Twitter, 
if you ever meet anybody who looks at you like Tim Kirchin looked at Hank Aaron for two hours tonight, you should marry that person. And I think the reverence I showed and we all showed, Eduardo Perez, Dave Fleming, and myself was very much, uh, had to be done. It's Hank Aaron, and he had the class to sit next to us and answer all of our questions with amazing recall for two hours. That was the highlight of my career. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, um, doing some research on you, we saw that in 1997 when you were working for Sports Illustrated, they reassigned you to covering basketball for a little bit. What was that like? Uh, that was not good. Um, I had a new sports editor at, uh, at Sports Illustrated who thought it's good to change things up a little bit and give people a new fresh start on another sport. So I covered basketball for a, a few months only, and then I did baseball for the rest of the year. So it was only a few months. It was, uh, it was a bad idea for me. I thought it was a bad idea for Sports Illustrated, but no worries. Uh, I got a great experience covering basketball, which I love, but uh, uh, that was my reason that I left Sports Illustrated. It also gave me a reason to uh, do television, which had just started that year at Sports Illustrated. So uh, a bad thing for me, at least, turned out to be a good thing for my career because it led directly to me going to ESPN the magazine, ESPN.com, where I could write at both places. And it essentially started my television career, and now I've been at ESPN for 23 years so it was a bad day but i got over it quickly and moved on right so what is it about baseball that made you realize like this is always the sport that i want to cover that you know made you so passionate well i grew up in um in the sport i mean this is the only but the baseball is the only language we spoke at my house growing up my father was a really good little player and he had a feel and a love for the game basically unmatched of any person I think I've ever met. So this is all we talked about in my house. My two brothers, Andy and Matt, are in the Hall of Fame at Catholic University for baseball. Um, again, we all played it. My father taught it to us. He taught us how what to look for, what not to look for. He all gave us all a great feel for the game. And again, this is the only thing that I was truly interested in, this basketball and football growing up. And I just decided once, uh, with every year I got older, that somehow, some way, I love this game so much, I have to try, try to make a career out of it. And uh, it was not easy. And, and there was a famous conversation, I guess, I wasn't there, at the dinner table, like my senior year in high school, that, you know, Tim doesn't have any, my oldest brother, who was a PhD from MIT, said, you know, Tim doesn't have a whole lot going for him. All he does is love baseball. How's he going to make a career out of that? It was a legitimate question, and my father said, don't worry, he'll figure it out, and uh, thankfully I did. It took a long time, but that's, uh, that's where it came from. This is the only language we spoke in my house growing up was baseball. And a couple of years ago uh, during spring training, it became popular for players to impersonate you in interviews. And they called it Kirchening. What was that like for you? 
Well, it was a little bit embarrassing at the beginning, and I really worried about my credibility at the beginning because people were laughing at me. As it turns out they were laughing with me. And Tito Francona, who's now the Indians manager, he was the one behind that. He ambushed me on the air with J.P. Aaron Sebia. And it turned out, I must acknowledge later, to be a hilarious segment, and most people seem to really enjoy it. And when Dan Shaughnessy, one of my mentors, told me, Tim, this is television gold, this is not hurting you, this is helping you, I decided to go along with it. And Mike McQuaid, my boss at ESPN, who's the best TV guy I've ever met, he told me soon after a couple of people impersonated me, he said, Tim, look, we'll stop people from doing this if you want us to, but this is great television, and if it doesn't bother you, we're going to put more people on because it's good for everyone. And I think the lesson I learned is covering baseball, we're still kind of in the toys and games department. It's okay to have a good chuckle once in a while. I tell players all the time, this is the hardest game in the world to play, and if you don't have a good laugh with it once in a while, it will eat you up. And same with a writer who covers it just relentlessly from basically February 1st till November the 1st. Uh, so I decided to have a good laugh with it. I did go to J.P. Aaron C.B. after a while and say, tell me, please, that you do other impersonations. Tell me that you do Jack Nicholson. And he goes, no, I can only do you. So uh, I guess that was pretty funny in itself also. So switching gears again back to, you know, talking about the MLB today, um, how do you think the game has changed um, from when you started covering baseball to now? Well, it's changed dramatically. The players are bigger, stronger, faster, and better than ever. There's no way around that. I am dazzled on a daily basis how good these guys are today, how big and strong and fast they are today, how, how much better the pitching is today than it was, say, in 1979-80. However, I've also found that the game frankly isn't as good today as it used to be i think we have too many walks we have too many strikeouts we have too many home runs and we don't have enough in between and even though the players are bigger stronger faster and better than ever i think they have less of an idea how to play the game today than they used to they just overpower the game now with their incredible athletic gifts which are sizable but because they have such incredible talents and skills and gifts, I, I find they don't have the same understanding of the game. They don't understand the subtle nuances of the game, like base running, like hitting the cutoff man, like learning to bunt, like hitting to the opposite field. We don't have that anymore. They're just not the cerebral players like Cal Ripken and Paul Molitor and Robin Yount and George Brett were when I first started coming up. And that doesn't mean I want those guys to come back to life and play again. I'm just saying there's something to be learned from understanding all the subtleties of the game. Our players are great now, but they could they could be even better if they really understood all the, the nuances of the game. Right, I know there's been a lot of discussion about you know, attendance at baseball as of late and, you know, the league has obviously for a while been trying to increase that. What is kind of your thoughts on 
you know, the best way to in, increase kind of popularity of the sport and keep it going and try and get, you know, younger generations involved? Well, overall, baseball is still doing fine. Let's make sure we understand that. But it has become much more of a regional game than a national game. And I think that's part because of the proliferation of games that are on TV now. If you're a Pirates fan, let's say, and you love the Pirates, you're going to watch the pregame show, you're going to watch their local cable broadcast, and then you're going to watch the postgame show, and then you're going to go to bed. And not everyone in Pittsburgh is interested if the World Series is, say, between the Astros and the Nationals because they care now only about the Pirates. And it's very expensive to go to a major league game today. If you have an 80-inch screen at your house and you get the perfect view of a game, so many perfect views from television, and it's so much less expensive and it's so much less time-consuming, that unfortunately is what a lot of people are looking at, that it's a better experience to watch the game from home. And that creates some issues with attendance, which is not good. And I also think, you know, we need to speed up the games a little bit, but we have to do it in the proper way. And the only way to do that is to cut down on the walks, the strikeouts, and the home runs. But that's not going to happen overnight. And that's not going to necessarily happen with a pitch clock or making a reliever face three batters before he comes out before he comes out of a game. So there are a lot of things baseball is working on now to make the game more interesting and better, but I think that process is going to take several years before we get back to crisper played games, fewer walks, fewer strikeouts, fewer homers. And a story this offseason obviously that you've been covering so closely is the Astros and the cheating scandal. And just quickly, I know you I probably have a lot to say about it, but what are your overall thoughts on how it was handled and now how some of the players are reacting towards it? Well, in 40 years of covering, I have never seen players going after players like we've seen here recently. And I simply was not prepared for this. Um, I think the Astros handled this so poorly right from the beginning the arrogance of the Astros, which I find to be offensive before all of this came up, really has shown not just not the players necessarily, but the arrogance of ownership and the front office to not even recognize how damaging something like this can be to the game. We have a bunch of young people in the sport today who have no investment in the game, probably no real love for the game, but they find a way to move ahead in the in the structure, in the organization, by finding a way to, you know, sneak a camera into the clubhouse and steal some signs. And, you know, the players went along with it, which they shouldn't have done. But it's just a good reminder that you have to have something invested in the game if you're really going to lose something. And now the Astros are finding out on a daily basis how much they're losing. That initial press conference that they made this spring was a disaster. It got a whole lot better when the players started to speak earnestly from their locker. But now it's possible some of them have spoken too much. And now the situation is completely upside down because of the player-on-player bashing and the players bashing the commissioner. We are in a very difficult spot in baseball right now. And it's only going to get worse from here because we still haven't heard about the Red Sox penalty 
We haven't heard from Alex Cora. We haven't heard from Carlos Beltran. So there's still a lot to come here, and it's not going to be pleasant. So obviously this this isn't something that's going away. How do you think uh, the MLB is going to handle uh, the conflict between the Astros players and players on other teams and opposing fans when the season starts? Well, I think Major League Baseball, as Rob Manfred, the commissioner, has already said, look, we're not going to tolerate anybody throwing at the Astros. And yet people are still going to do that because that's the old old way to get back at somebody who has disrespected the game is to dust them or hit them or take them out at second base although you're not allowed to do that anymore so the hope is that the commissioner says i did all that i could do the punishments were severe i couldn't i couldn't suspend any players because of the immunity i granted them but i think he's going to have to come out and say this cannot happen again And if it does happen again, there will be no immunity, there will be suspensions, there will be titles stripped. But I think he's already moved on from that, and he's in a very difficult situation. But I think the only way to move forward is to make sure this doesn't happen again. So maybe, maybe looking at the positive side, this is the start of the end of this story. It's just the start of the end. It's not the end of the end. But hopefully something good will come out of a really bad situation. Right. And also looking at this upcoming season, I know you covered the Orioles for some time. And, you know, the Nationals are coming off of the World Series. What are your uh, predictions for those two local teams this uh, this season? Well, I just saw the Nationals and I was very impressed with what I saw. Now, they're going to miss Anthony Rendon terribly and they will not be able to replace him. He's that good. But I was really I was really taken by the attitude of the players in camp. Their bullpen is much better. They have great starting pitching. They still have a pretty good lineup. And they've got great a great attitude and a great chemistry about them. And I think there's – I know a couple players kind of whispered to me, go ahead, you know, go talk to everyone at the Astros or all over baseball. Just leave us alone. We're fine with the, with the underdog role. It worked really well for us last year. And if anyone thinks we're not good again or a championship-caliber team again, just watch. So I was really impressed with what I saw from the Nationals. The Orioles, I have not seen them yet this spring, but they're going to struggle, and they're going to struggle mightily. I don't think there's a way around that. And uh, it's just a team in a complete rebuild. That rebuild is is basically one year into it. It's going to take, I believe, at least five years to turn this organization around. It's usually the time. It's how long it took the Astros, the Cubs, and some others. So all I can say to the great fans of the Orioles, just be patient. This is going to take some time. And there's been a lot of offseason moves with guys like Garrett Cole going to the Yankees, Mookie Betts, and David Price to the Dodgers. Do you think that those two teams will be in the World Series in October? Yes. If I have to pick somebody in the middle of February, I would say the the Yankees will play the Dodgers in the World Series. But the beauty of baseball is um, we're never quite sure. We're pretty sure sometimes when the Golden State Warriors are at complete strength with healthy Kevin Durant, healthy Steph Curry, healthy Clay Thompson, they're going to win the NBA championship. But baseball doesn't operate that way, which is one of the great beauties of the sport. But given everything that the Dodgers did, they are a team right now without a glaring weakness. 
Mookie Betts is going to add another dimension to an already really good team, as is David Price. And Garrett Cole is precisely what the Yankees needed for the top of their rotation. I think they will be the prohibitive favorites, those teams, going into the season. But this is a really great sport. Its ultimate beauty is its unpredictability. We're still not sure how this is going to work, but... uh, I've never placed a bet in my life, but if I had to, I would say the Yankees would play the Dodgers in the World Series. If there is going to be a team that unseats the Yankees or the Dodgers and gets to the World Series, who do you think that um, team is? Well, I'm not sure there's a close second to either one of those teams right now, but it would be foolish to count the Astros out who almost won the world series last year. And even though they will be under enormous pressure, enormous distraction and no Garrett Cole, I think you have to include them from the American league as a team that could give the Yankees a hard time in the postseason. But I repeat, the Yankees are much better than the Astros right now. I don't see another team. I love the Rays. I love what the Twins have done. um, And I love the Oakland A's. But I don't see anybody in the Yankees class at this point. And same goes for the National League. I just don't see a team in the Central that at the moment stacks up with the Dodgers. I like what the Diamondbacks did. I think the Braves are really good. And I think the Nationals are still a championship contender. But I don't see any of those teams good enough to beat the Dodgers at this point. But as the old saying goes, this is why we play the games. Because something crazy happens every major league season. So if the Dodgers and Yankees don't play in the World Series this year, no one should be shocked. Because baseball doesn't allow you to know how a season is going to go, especially six months yeah, before October. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We know that you have a busy spring training schedule, but we really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, and good luck to uh, everyone in Maryland, and you guys, you guys and girls did a great job. Thank you.